The Parental Fallacy. If any fantasy holds our contemporary civilization in an unyielding grip, it is that we are our parents' children, and that the primary instrument of our fate is the behavior of your mother and father. As their chromosomes are ours, so are their mess ups and attitudes. Their joint unconscious psyche, the rages they suppress, the longings they cannot fulfill, the images they dream at night, basically form our souls, and we can never ever work through and be free of this determinism. The individual's soul continues to be imagined as a biological offspring of the family tree. They grow psychologically out of their minds as our flesh grows biologically out of our bodies. If sharp definitions of parenting and parents have begun to melt owing to the infiltrations of law, demographics, and biochemistry, the idea of parenting and parents is more hardened than ever in the minds of moral reformers and psychotherapists. The shibboleth family values is expressed by catchphrases like bad mothering and absent fathering trickles down into family systems therapy, which has become the single most important set of ideas determining the theory of societal dysfunction and the practice of mental health. Yet, all along, a little well elf whispers another tale. You are different. You're not like anyone in the family. You don't really belong. There is an unbeliever in the heart. It calls the family a fantasy, a fallacy. Even the biological model has puzzling gaps. Contraception is easier to account for and practice than conception itself. What goes on in that massive, virginly intact, single round ovum that allows only this particular minuscule sperm among millions to enter? Or is the question more correctly addressed to the sperm? Is one of you more wily, more pushy, and more sympathetically con congenial? Or is it just the randomness of luck? And what is luck, really? We know about DNA and the results of joinings, but we are left with a mystery that Darwin spent a life with, the mystery of selection. The acorn theory suggests a primitive solution. It says, your diamond selected both the egg and the sperm as it selected your carriers called parents. Their union results from your necessity not the other way around. Does this not help to understand the impossible unions, those antipathies and misalliances, the quick conceptions and sudden desertions occurring between the parents of so many of us, and especially in the biographies of the eminent? The couple came together not for their personal unity, but to beget the unique person endowed with a specific acorn, who turns out to be you. Take, for instance, the tale of Thomas Wolfe, 
that gigantic, verbose, romantic, smoky mountain novelist, born October 3rd, 1900. The parents of Wolfe, says his biographer Andrew Turnbull, were joined in an epic misalliance. Two people more temperamentally unsuited could scarcely be imagined. The father was lavish, sensual, expansive. The mother, flinty, parsimonious, repressed. How did they ever get together? Some 16 years before Thomas Wolfe's arrival on Earth, his mother, Julia Westall, aged 24, country school teacher, came into the shop of once-divorced, once-widowed W.O. Wolfe, a marble cutter who made tombstones. She came a-calling to sell books, her moonlighting way of picking up the extra penny. Having glanced at the book she was selling, he put his name down for it. Then he asked if she ever read novels. Oh, I read most everything, she answered. Not the Bible as much as I should, though. W.O. said he owned some fine love stories, and that afternoon he sent her Augusta Jane Evans' St. Elmo. A few days later, when Julia was starting at out to sell another book, W.O. pressed her to stay for lunch, after which he took her into the parlor and showed her his stereopticon slides of the Civil War. He took her hand and said he had been watching her for quite a while as he passed his shop and proposed. Julia protested that they barely knew each other. W.O. was so adamant, however, that she finally said she would open the book she was selling at random and abide by the middle paragraph of the right-hand page. Just a bit of foolishness on my part, she remembered long afterwards, and hit on a description of a wedding with the words, Till death do us part. Oh, that's it, cried W.O. That's the very thing. We're going to let it stand. The wedding took place in January, a scant three months after his headlong proposal. Many explanations for this sudden misalliance. Opposites attract, youth and age, simple utility. She needed an economic foothold. He needed a housekeeper sadomasochistic compulsion, reenactment of parental dramas, societal pressures on the single. Are you convinced? Why not at least entertain that they met through the book? She approached him proposing a book. He countered, sending her a book. It was decided by opening a book, and they brought forth as fruit of their bookish union, Thomas Wolfe, writer of books. When he was two, it was a parental parlor trick to have him read aloud for guests. Julia believed she had invisibly brought about his literary ability, for during her pregnancy, she had spent the afternoons reading in bed.
As for Wolf's six living brothers and sisters, they had other acorns, which chose those parents for other proclivities. Again, it is mainly in the exceptional that the acorn shows itself most clearly. So Thomas Wolfe was called to that household in Asheville, North Carolina, and his parents were called to each other to make that household so that he could do what had to be done. How else could he have done what he did had he not known his parents before they knew him? An angel's finger opened the page, conceiving them to be his parents before they conceived him, their child. Back to the Invisibles. Since the acorn can't even be seen under a microscope, we postulate its invisible reality. To learn more about it, we need first to study the nature of invisibility. Invisibility perplexes American common sense and American psychology, which hold as a major governing principle that whatever exists, exists in some quantity and therefore can be measured. If an image in the heart that calls you to your fate exists, and may be strong and long-lasting, has it measurable dimensions? A passion to cage the invisible by visible methods continues to motivate the science of psychology, even though that science has given up the century-long search for the soul in various body parts and systems. When the searchers failed to find the soul in the places where they were looking, scientific psychology, scientistic psychology, gave up also on the idea of soul. There are other approaches to the soul, other accounts of fate determining invisibilities. Swedes tell a folktale of the forests. The lumberjacks of northern pine, fir, and spruce used to work pretty much alone felling trees, lopping branches. They drank, too, in the short days of white cold, coffee, snaps. Sometimes Holdra would appear. She was an exquisitely formed creature, delicate, enchanting, and irresistible. Sometimes a woodcutter would stop his work, even drop his axe to follow her beckoning farther into the woods. As he approached, she turned her back and vanished. Once Holdra turned her smiling face away, there was nothing. She had no back, or her back was invisible, and he, drawn too deeply into the forest, unable to find familiar markings or get back to a clearing, lost his bearings and froze. Mythical Thinking I am opening this chapter with a mythical tale of the siren, the wood nymph, the tree soul, and of the simple human at his chores, who at her disappearance loses direction and motion and dies. The interpretation of the tale in terms of male and female roles, of archetypal anima, of losing the soul to fantasy projections, of the enchanted forest as mother domain, of archaic vegetative spirits taking revenge on man, the destructive axe murderer, these do not take the tale back far enough, back to the absent back of Holdra. 
Behind each and every interpretation of the tale is the tale. The tale provides the invisible backdrop against which all analyses parade their brilliance. Myth lies behind every account we give of it, and it gives no account of itself. Myths fall back on invisibility. They show an enchanting face, but their backing disappears under scrutiny. Nothing's there. We are lost in the woods. We can all tell tales of how myths came into being, out of dreams, out of primitive man's attempt to explain the cosmos and its natural phenomena, as ways of establishing tribal law by reference to fearful powers, from shamanistic visions and revelations, or just in portentous elaborations of simple stories told by old women after beer in the firelight to pass the time or lull the young to sleep. Whatever the account of the origin of myth, what's behind myths remains inscrutable. Great philosophical questions turn on the relations of visible and invisible. Our religious beliefs separate heaven and earth, this life, this life and the afterlife, and our philosophical thinking cuts apart mind and matter, all of which forces a chasm behind, between the visible and the invisible. How to bridge the chasm? What means are there for transporting the unseen into the seen, or the seen into the unseen? There are three traditional bridges, mathematics, music, and myths. Mysticism might be considered a fourth. However, mysticism unites visible and invisible. All things are transparent and proclaim their invisible ground. So for the mystic, there is no chasm and no problem. Engineering a rational connection between the realms may only push them further apart. That is why mystics recommend contemplating a dilemma rather than trying to fix it. The equations of math, the notations on a musical score, and the personifications of myth cross the limbo land between two worlds. They offer a seductive front that seems to present the unknown other side, a seduction that leads to the delusional conviction that math, music, and myths are the other side. We tend to believe that the real truth of the invisible world is mathematical and might be put into a single unified field equation, and or that it is a musical harmony of the spheres, and or that it consists in mythical beings and powers, with names and shapes who pull the strings that determine the visible, the three modes transpose the mystery of that invisible into visible procedures we can work with. Higher math, musical notations, and mythical images. So enchanted are we by the mystery transposed into these systems that we mistake the systems for the mystery. Rather, they are indications pointing toward it. We forget the old lesson and mistake the finger that points at the moon for the moon itself. We believe Holdra's invisible back must be as beautiful as her front.
What is the relation between what we see and what we don't? Is her back displayed in her front? And does the smile of beauty therefore allure because it is the best possible representation of the invisible? Beauty could be a bridge, but we can't be so sure. Holder's back may be a horror. After all, the woodsman dies lost and frozen. So, though beauty has been defined by Neoplatonists as invisible presence in visible form, and the divine enhancement of earthly things, it offers no structure and no permanence. Tracking its definitions through history will not lead us where we are now heading. Besides, beauty has been reduced to the other three bridges, mathematical proportion, harmony of parts, and the radiance of the goddess Aphrodite. Curious how the search for Holdra's back leads so deep into the mythical forest. And we can't get out by searching for familiar facts. The invisible shows no facts. The stories that myths tell cannot be documented in histories. The gods and goddesses and the heroes and their enemies are told about in stories inscribed in clay and carved in statues. But have they ever been physically seen? The fabulous places of myth are not in this world, all invented, just fables. The long-lasting and ever-renewing vitality of myths has nothing factual behind it. Nothing but invisibles lies behind all myth's strength. Myth is a mixture of truth and poetic fancy, this fading into uncertainty belongs to the very nature of myth, says the Plato scholar Paul Friedlander. Perhaps Holdra fading into the forest is myth personified, the basic truth of myth captured in a single poetic image. Usual life, too, is backed by invisibles, those abstractions of high-energy physics that compose all the visible, palpable, and durable stuff we bump into. The invisibles of theology we kneel to, the invisible ideals that take us to war and death, the invisible diagnostic concepts that explain our marriages, our motives, and our madnesses. And what about time? Has anyone seen it recently? All these invisibles, which we take so for granted, seem much harder and firmer than the flimsy fantasies of myth. We live among a throng of invisibles that order us about. Family values, self-development, human relationships, personal happiness, and then another, more fierce set of mythical figures called control, success, cost-effectiveness, and the biggest and most pervasively invisible, the economy. Were we in old Florence or ancient Rome or Athens, our invisible dominance would have statues and altars, or at least painted images, as did the Florentine, Roman, Athenian invisibles, called fortune, hope, friendship, grace, modesty, persuasion, fame, ugliness, forgetfulness. 
But our task here is not to restore all the invisibles, but to discriminate among them by attending to the one that once was called your daemon or genius. Sometimes your soul or your fate, and now your acorn. Perhaps these other sorts of daily invisibles that we accept without thinking receive their hardness from our attachment to them. If we cling like barnacles to our favorite set of invisibles, then they must serve as rocks and feel as solid. Philosopher Henri Bergson explained why we prefer particles to myths. The human intellect feels at home among inanimate objects, more especially among solids, where our action finds its fulcrum and our industry its tools. Our concepts have been formed on the model of solids. Our logic is preeminently a logic of solids. Bergson concludes, therefore, that intellect is unsuited for actual living and for the account of life. All the while, this same inadequate intellect fights furiously against other sorts of accounts, such as myth, which it condemns with solid arguments, buttressed with facts, supported by evidence, and structured by logic. William Wordsworth saw through the logic of solids, perceiving the invisible within them. To every natural form, rock, fruit, or flower, even the loose stones that cover the highway, I gave a moral life. I saw them feel, or linked them to some feeling. The great mass lay bedded in some quickening soul, and all that I beheld respired with inward meaning. Authentic tidings of invisible things, adds William James, in his essay entitled On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings, where he quotes Wordsworth among passages from Ralph Waldo Emerson, W.H. Hudson, Josiah Royce, Robert Louis Stevenson, Leo Tolstoy, and Walt Whitman as witnesses to the presence of the invisible. James ironically praises and blames the certain blindness. On the one hand, he condemns our usual perception, which cannot see the invisible inwardness of rock, fruit, and flower. On the other hand, precisely this blinding of the usual intellectual mind and the blunting of its sharp edge permits us to say with, with Wordsworth, I saw them feel. The Wordsworth passage is a statement of mythical thinking and not merely a feeling. I saw them feel shows a softer sensibility in intellect itself that can receive and understand the authentic tidings of invisible things. Just the sensibility in intellect, which I am also calling mythic sensibility, allows you to notice the quickening soul in which our lives are bedded. For Wordsworth and for mythic sensibility in general, the acorn is not embedded in me like a peacemaker in my heart, like a pacemaker in my heart. But rather I am embedded in a mythical reality of which the acorn is, but my particular and very small portion. What the romantics call the quickening soul is today named psychic reality. 
It is all over the place, although we insist it is invisible. Intuition The traditional mode of perceiving the invisible and therefore of perceiving the acorn is intuition. Intuition also includes what I have called mythic sensibility. For when a myth strikes us, it seems true and gives sudden insight. In psychology, intuition means direct and unmediated knowledge, immediate or innate apprehension of a complex group of data. Intuition is both thoughtless and also not a feeling state. It is a clear, quick, and full apprehension, the significant feature being the immediacy of the process. Intuitions occur to a person without any known process of cogitation or reflective thinking. Our perceptions of people are mostly intuitive. We take them in as a whole, accent, clothes, build, expression, complexion, voice, stance, gestures, the regional, social, and class cues, all delivers itself at once as a full gestalt to intuition. The old diagnosticians of internal medicine used intuition. So do photographers and astrologers and personal managers and baseball scouts and deans of admission and probably also CIA analysts retrieving the field information and seeing in a mass of tedious data an invisible significance. Intuition perceives the image, the paradigma, a whole gestalt. Intuitions occur, we do not make them. They come to us as a sudden idea, a definite judgment, a grasped meaning. They come with an event as if brought by it, or inherent in it. You say something, and I get it, just like that. You show me a short, complicated poem, and I see. We go to the blockbuster retrospective at the art museum, and without reading the blurb sheet or plugging in the audio lecture, I suddenly find myself gasping, aha, in front of a painting on the wall. I've been struck. Your sentence that I intuitively grasp, the complex poem and the picture on the museum wall are each expressive forms and quite visible. The rapid understanding that seizes me, bringing me to what psychology calls the aha erlebnis, that gasping response of sudden insight, pulls or pushes my breath out of me by the force in the picture. Mythical thinking attributes this forcefulness, which produces my insight, to a power in the thing. The power in the thing establishes the reality, even the physicality, of the invisible. Another important characteristic of intuition is the way it works. It does not expand slowly as a gradual suffusion of mood, nor does it advance by thought, step by step, nor does it come to its insight by a careful examination of sunset details that compose the whole object before me. As I said, intuition is clear, 
quick and full. Like a revelation, it comes all at once and fast. It is quite independent of time, just as myths are timeless and fall apart when we ask them temporal questions, such as, when did this occur? What is the origin? Did the myth develop? Are there no new myths? Don't they result from historical events? And so on. The historian bound by the data of time never can quite get into mythical sensibility. Because intuitions are clear, quick, and full, and therefore so convincing, they can be wholly wrong, missing the mark, just as quickly and completely as they can get it right. Jung, who placed intuition with thinking, feeling, and sensation among the four functions of consciousness, made a major point of intuition's need for its brother and sister functions. Alone, it can pick the wrong horse as surely as the right one, or go off with paranoid certitude, oblivious of logic, feeling, and fact. But Jung's ironic realism regarding intuition was not shared by the idealist strain of intuitionist philosophers. Baruch Spinoza, Friedrich Schelling, Benedetto Croce, Henri Bergson, Edmund Husserl, and Alfred North, Whitehead, ennoble it one way or another as an axiomatic and quasi-divine gift that is, as well, a philosophical method of knowing truth. Intuition is also called upon for explaining creativity and genius, the inexplicable accounted for by a process that is itself inexplicable. But the idolization of intuition neglects especially its darkest shadow, the intuitive opportunism of the sociopath, and the clear, quick, and full seizures of a psychopathic criminal whose unmediated and self-evident propositions produce wholly arbitrary and casual deeds of violence, without logic, feeling, or appreciation of the real facts. Intuition may propose a way, but does not assure right action or even accurate perception. This we know from any of our immediate, self-evident moves, such as falling in love with the wrong person, making false accusations, and issuing rash dismissals, and arriving at those sure self-diagnoses of medical conditions that prove wholly hypochondriacal, hypochondriacal. Though certain, intuition may not be accurate. Our mythic sensibility may pick up the authentic tidings of inward things, but authenticity can be assured only by checking the facts, looking back at tradition, thinking carefully, and valuing by feeling. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has used these methods for testing intuitive claims of sanctity and examining miracles. This excursus on intuition was necessary for three reasons. First, we needed an acceptable term for the kind of perception that sees mythically. I saw them feel. 
that sees through the visible and that claims insight into the invisible. We needed to make psychologically plausible the idea of mythical sensibility, equivalent to that of math and music, so that reliance on myth in this book may carry conviction. To grasp or be grasped by myth, you need intuition. The relevance of a myth to life strikes like a revelation or a self-evident proposition, which cannot be demonstrated by logic or induced from factual evidence. The best evidence is anecdote, the telling example that lights up an obscure idea in a clear intuitive flash. The second reason for this excursus was to show a common function at work in the three bridges, math, music, and myth, and also in the realm of aesthetics or beauty. It is intuition that gives them each other, gives them each their instantaneity and sureness. Kant's theory of aesthetics relies on intuition as does Mozart's description of composition. Authorities who have examined poetic inspiration and mathematical invention show the immediate certitude of intuition in the examples they present, e.g. the mathematician Henri Poincaré's oft-cited statement that most striking at first is this appearance of sudden illumination. The third reason takes us again to biographies and to a terrible tension between intuition and tuition in many exemplars of the acorn. Emerson wrote, We denote this primary wisdom as intuition, whilst all later teaching are tuitions. Emerson opposes the two, seeing intuition as not tuition. Insight and learning, the heart's imagination and classroom study do not have to be opposed. Nevertheless, Emerson correctly intuited that strong division in many of the eminent who choose intuition over tuition. They quit school. They hated it. They wouldn't or couldn't learn. They were thrown out. Their teachers walked out on them. Intuition was at war with tuition. School Days and Nightmares Cradles of Eminence, a delightful and well-documented report on the childhoods of 400 famous modern persons, states that three-fifths of the subjects had serious school problems. Rejections of the classroom is an international phenomenon and has little to do with whether the schools are public or private, secular or clerical, or with the philosophy of teaching employed in the various schools. Nor does the school difficulty of these eminent persons have anything to do with their families' attitudes, economic circumstances, or educational level. Hating school failing school, expulsion from school, afflicts all sorts, 
for better or for worse. Thomas Mann, who was awarded Nobel recognition largely for a novel he wrote in his early 20s, described school as stagnating and unsatisfactory. The great Indian scholar and poet Rabindranath Tagore, who, like Mann, came from an educated and well-to-do background, quit school at 13 because he suffered so much there. I was fortunate enough to extricate myself before insensibility set in. Of his school days, Gandhi said that they were the most miserable years of his life, that he had no aptitude for lessons and rarely appreciated his teachers, and might have done better if he had never been to school. The Norwegian novelist Sigrid Unset declared, I hated school so intensely, I avoided the discipline by an elaborate technique of being absent-minded during classes. The Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman called his early school an intellectual desert. The actor and director Kenneth Branagh so feared school when he was about 11 that he tried throwing himself downstairs to break a leg rather than let go. Later, he withdrew into his room and read and read. The German filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder simply could not remain in the company of normal children and eventually was put in a Rudolf Steiner school. Jackson Pollock, who flouted school requirements as blithely as he ignored its dress code, was expelled from Los Angeles High School. John Lennon was expelled from kindergarten. The saddest story I have found of the miseries of the school child comes from the English poet Robert Browning. He was sent off to a boarding school at the age of eight or nine. It so depressed him that he chose a leaden cistern in the school for his place of burial. It had on it a raised image of a face He imagined this face as his epitaph, passing his hands over it again and again and chanting, a memory of unhappy Browning. As for the lessons, Browning said, they taught him nothing there. The imaginative existentialist writer, Paul Bowles, did not get along with his new teacher, Miss Crane. He resented her authoritative style and he adamantly refused to take part in class singing and as a method of revenge, devised a system to do what to him were meaningless assignments without really doing them. He simply wrote everything perfectly but backwards. For Bowles, the activity most detested was singing. For others, it will be Latin or algebra or sports or English composition. The acorn draws the line, and no one can force it to cross into the territory of its incompetence. It is as if the oak cannot bend or pretend to be a lovely poplar. As the acorn brings gifts, it sets limits, and only if the school allows intuition into the tuitional methods of the teacher can a bridge be thrown across, allowing the gift to emerge from the limits. School failures are common. Is this because the child fails school or because school fails the child?
Either way, the gap widens between the innate, intuitive ability of the child and the formalized tuition of school. As the writer William Saroyan put it, I resented school, but I never resented learning. All the while he had trouble in school, he was reading on his own nearly every book in the Fresno, California public library. The composer Edvard Grieg said, school developed in me nothing but what was evil and left the good untouched. Thomas Edison said, I was always at the foot of the class. Stephen Crane, Eugene O'Neill, William Faulkner, and F. Scott Fitzgerald all failed courses in college. For Ellen Glasgow, author of On Barren Ground and a Pulitzer-winning writer, school was intolerable. Willa Cather, Pearl Buck, Isadora Duncan, and Susan B. Anthony also disliked school. Paul Cezanne was rejected by the École des Beaux Beaux Arts in Paris. Marcel Proust's teacher considered his compositions disorganized, and Emile Zola got a zero in literature, also failing in German language and in rhetoric. Albert Einstein wrote of his middle school, which he attended from age nine and a half. I preferred to endure all sorts of punishments rather than to gabble by rote. Earlier at primary school, he was not especially noticeable and was called Biedermeier, meaning a little dull, a little simple, a little unclever. His sister wrote that he wasn't even good at arithmetic in the sense of being quick and accurate, though he was reliable and persevering. Some of these characteristics were due to his slowness of speech. General George S. Patton was dyslexic and was kept back. Winston Churchill at Harrow refused to study mathematics, Greek, or Latin, and was placed in the lowest form, in what today would be termed the remedial reading class, where slow boys were taught English. His English, however, was not poor. His knowledge of Shakespeare was unusual and self-motivated. The gap between what is seen by the school and what is felt by the child can work in two ways. Mostly, the child following his or her invisible track is perceived as out of it, unteachable, obstinately difficult, even stupid. But pressure can build the other way as well. Diane Arbus, the quirky and extraordinary photographer, said, The teachers always used to think I was smart, and they would torment me because I knew that I was really terribly dumb. Whether the child is perceived as dumb, like Einstein, or smart, like Arbus, the gap in perception between child and school remains unbridged. When perception of the invisible in the child does occur, as in the case, cases of Truman Capote, Elia Kazan, and James Baldwin, it feels like an unforgettable miracle. Examinations, especially, can be a trial. The master bacteriologist, Paul Ehrlich, had to be excused from school compositions 
because of his complete ineptness. Giacomo Puccini consistently failed exams. Gertrude Stein would not take her final in a class at Harvard. Anton Chekhov refused to study classics and failed his school exam twice. These failures at school gave him nightmares. All his life, he was to be haunted by dreams of teachers trying to catch him out. Pablo Picasso, who could never remember the sequence of the alphabet, left school at 10 because he stubbornly refused to do anything but paint. Even his private tutor gave up on him because Pablo could not learn arithmetic. Often it was not in school, but outside of it, in extracurricular activities or during time spent altogether away from school, that calling appeared. It is as if the image in the heart, in so many cases, is hampered by the program of tuition and its time-bound regularity. Henri Matisse began to paint during a convalescence. H.G. Wells was slated for the retail trade. He broke his leg when he was eight, began to read, and was saved from commerce for literature. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and candidate for the presidency, Charles Evans Hughes, wandered the streets of New York City for six months while waiting to be accepted into college. William Randolph Hearst and the artist John Lafarge added to their learning by wasting time in the Manhattan streets. At 15, Marie Curie had a whole year in the country free from school. Who can prescribe where the acorn learns best or where the soul puts you to the test? Exams are a ritual moment. Anything can happen. They mark transitions from one state of being to another, the way a wedding does, or like giving birth for the first time. Examination panics, together with the strange ceremonies of food and fetishes the night before the final, further show the ritual background of the test. An exam tests more than your endurance, ability, and knowledge It tests your calling. Does your daemon want the path you have chosen? Is your soul really in it? If doing well on the test may be a confirmation, a failed exam may be how the daemon lets us know we've been headed wrong. Omar Bradley, a five-star general who held in mind vast campaigns involving millions of men and tons of supplies, was near the bottom on his test scores in group 27 of 28 when he entered West Point. Through plotting and grinding, he worked his way up to graduate 44th in a class of 168. In the same class, Dwight D. Eisenhower was 61st and James Van Fleet, 92nd. Tuition helped Bradley's intuition Intuition also helped him to get into West Point when he had to sit through four days of four-hour exams each day. I had a terrible time with algebra. At the end of two hours, I had solved no more than 20% of the necessary 67% of the problems required to pass. That was it. Complete failure. 
There was no way I could finish our pass. Utterly discouraged, I gathered up my papers and walked up to the officer in charge. I saw he was deeply engrossed in a book. Not wishing to disturb him, I returned to my desk, thinking I might as well give it one more try. Then, almost magically, the theorems started to come to me. Bradley made it. He hung on through the rest of the exams and was accepted by West Point. Sometimes the acorn, like a good angel, magically enters the exam room at a fateful moment. Reading life backward, we might say that Bradley had to pass that exam. His military ability was essential to victory over Germany in 1943-1945, and later to serving as army chief of staff. Rush Limbaugh failed speech 101. When he retook the course, he held his fellow students at Southeast Missouri State spellbound. His professor, however, gave him a D, despite his inventive talent, his confidence, and his instinct for instant analysis. The professor said, I felt a smugness that he was not ready to listen to a teacher. Limbaugh's grasp of the audience was intuitive. For him, tuition only interfered. The conflicts between school and student show up sharply in the area that belongs most closely to the acorn's image, as in the case of Limbaugh. Bernard Baruch, advisor to presidents in the fields of banking, finance, and international economics, did well enough at Harvard, though he finished in the bottom half of his class in political economy and number crunching, math. Finally, Woody Allen. I paid attention to everything but the teachers. He demonstrated his abhorrence of school in some predictable ways. When he first attended PS 99, he was placed in an accelerated class because of his high IQ, but since the strictures of the classroom did not allow him to express himself in his own way and to use his imagination in his lessons, He instead expressed himself by becoming a troublemaker. He played hooky. He failed to do his homework. He was sometimes disruptive in class and rude to the teacher, who in turn lowered his grades for his behavior. The angel who reads a life as a total image hears these complaints and troubles and says, Of course school was a horror, Woody. You were already making films and writing jokes about these situations. So why have to go through them so concretely? Billy Graham could see no point to going to school at all. Literature gave him a lot of trouble. He was the last of everybody to get Milton's Allegro. Of course, the world's most renowned evangelist doesn't need to get Milton and all the literature because he has already received the true word. Paul Bowles had a lot of imagining to do, and so little time left for such extras as schoolwork. As for Rush Limbaugh, he already had a national listening audience by the throat, and so of course he couldn't take instruction from a Southwest Missouri State teacher of speech. Browning, writing his epitaph in school, 
was already reading his life backward. And why wouldn't Bernard prefer a dramatic fall downstairs, such as you see on stage and in the movies, to school? Wasn't he already a remarkable actor of heroic parts? As for Churchill, of course he had language problems. How could a person who was awarded a Nobel Prize in Literature and whose eloquence in 1940 and 1941 saved Western civilization for a while take on this huge daemon? It was far too much for a small-sized schoolboy. Invisible fates may show as visible failures. Maybe we should read the data of learning disorders and the case of school problems differently. Instead of failed at school, see saved from school. Not that this is my personal recommendation. I ask only that the sadnesses of children in school be imagined not merely as examples of failure, but as exemplars of the acorn. The daemon's intuition often cannot submit to the normalcy of schooling and becomes even more demonic. When we read life backward, when we look at the gestures of the acorn from the taller perspective of the full tree, we can gauge tuition against the importance of intuition. But what parent and what counselor can perch so high and see so well? And what child, even a gifted genius, can stick stubbornly enough to its intuitions, unless driven there by complex misunderstandings or by incapacitating symptoms like dyslexia, attention deficit disorder, allergies, asthma, or hyperactivity, any of which can keep a child from school. From school, yes, but not from learning. From tuition, but not from intuition. Not from that certain blindness which allows seeing of other sorts. Not every child will see, not every child will profit from missing school. But for us who watch over them and supposedly guide them, the door to the invisible factors at work in their disorders must be kept open, just in case it is an angel knocking and not merely a malady. Remember Jung's remark, the gods have become diseases. To see the angel in the malady requires an eye for the invisible, a certain blinding of one eye and an opening of the other to elsewhere. It is impossible to see the angel unless you first have a notion of it. Otherwise, the child is simply stupid, willful, or pathological. Even in the sciences, you only begin to see the phenomenon in the sky or under the microscope if someone first describes what you are looking for. We need instruction in the art of seeing. Then the invisible becomes suddenly visible, right in your squinting eye. There is in each of us a longing to see beyond what our usual sight tells us. A revelation of the invisible in an intelligible form leads us to the astrologer. How can the invisible and unbelievable planetary transits parading through their zodiacal zodiacal houses make my day. Please explain my dream, alter my state. We should see a sign. 
Weekend workshops invite us to open the doors of perception and invite the invisibles in. A long and serious tradition, however, warns against throwing the doors wide open, especially in a culture that cannot tell Waco from Waco. Bridging Realms. The main teaching in cultures where spirits visit frequently and the world itself is a bridge, such as those of Haiti, West Africa, Melanesia, and the circumpolar peoples we group together as Eskimos, focuses upon knowing the distinct nature and name of the different visitors, their rank, their powers, their spheres of action. These cultures have gatekeepers and bouncers who know ways of holding off what doesn't belong at that place in that moment. We had them too once, Platonic philosophers, Iamblichus, Proclus, Porphyry, listed all sorts of angels and archons and daemonas. The world was quite permeable, inhabited by both physical and imaginal bo bodies. The psychologist of religion, David Miller, reviews these ghosts, or geists, spirits, in our tradition to show their importance. But that permeability existed long ago in another kingdom of consciousness. Since then, the retraction of our interest from what rational consciousness calls magical, mystical, and mythical merges all the imaginal bodies indiscriminately into the monstrous. Result, the invisible becomes alien. The alienation of the invisible makes it more eerie and distant, and more represented by werewolves, time warps, and abductions in the Stephen Kingdom of our culture. Our modern passages are so narrow and with such low ceilings, the invisibles must twist themselves into freakish shapes in order to come through. Maybe what comes from elsewhere will make me do crazy things. Maybe that invisible world is demonic and should be excluded. What I can't see, I can't know, and what I don't know, I fear. What I fear, I hate. What I hate, I want destroyed. So the rationalized mind prefers the chasm to the bridge. It likes the cut that separates the realms. From inside its concrete debunker, all invisibles appear the same and bad. According to the teaching of St. Paul, discrimination of the spirits is a sign of true spiritual consciousness. You have to be able to tell one invisible from another. One method the church used for refining this discernment was its proliferation of official angels and saints. The variety of figures showed many qualities a host of different natures and areas of operation. The more recent rationalized church has been downsizing the invisible realm, submitting its imagination to historical criteria. Each invisible saint had to have a visible forebear with a historical pedigree. 
So we lost St. Christopher and others who were sheer myths. There are yet further questions regarding the relations between visible and invisible. Why make a bridge anyway? Plotinus said, it's for them to come to me, not for me to go to them. Maybe they don't want to come visiting, or maybe they are already here, like the angels in Wind Winder's films. We cannot know, since our theories of perception do not permit their appearance. They may not be invisible at all, but only seem so because declared so by our doctrinal blinding. Is it their nature or our vision that defines them as invisible? In the kingdom, or is it a mall, of the West, consciousness has lifted the transcendent ever higher and farther away from actual life. The bridgeable chasm has become a cosmic void. The gods have withdrawn and the poets Holderlin and Rilke. It takes a leap of faith, said Soren Kierkegaard. Not even that will do, for God is dead, said Nietzsche. Any bridge must be of superhuman proportions. Well, that kind of bridge our culture was ready to hand. The greatest bridge, some say, ever constructed between visible and invisible, the figure of Jesus Christ. Once invisibility has been removed from backing all the things we live among, so that our accumulated goods have become mere stuff, deaf and dumb and dead consumables, Christ becomes the only image left in the kingdom for bringing back to our culture the fundamental invisibility upon which cultures have always rested. Fundamentalism attempts, literally and dogmatically, to recover the invisible foundations of culture. Its strength lies in what it seeks, its menace in how it proceeds. Christ as bridge, and isn't the Pope, Vicar of Christ, still called the Pontiff from Pons Bridge, because the Incarnation means the presence of the invisible in the common matter of walking around human life. A God-man, visible and invisible become one. Centuries of huge and vicious debates have attempted to split the unity by coming down on one side or the other. Jesus is really a divinely inspired but visible man. Christ is really the invisible God borrowing human shape. Some glue, some independent link was required to hold these two theological incommensurables together. A third term that was different from the other two and that could join mortal and immortal. This third person, Christian theology, named the Holy Ghost. But this figure too belongs among the invisibles, which still tilts the balance away from the world. So the debate goes as it should, because the relation between these two terms gives rise to metaphysical speculation and religious practices that keep the problematic idea of the invisible from slipping away. Besides, the debate gives rise to this chapter's focus upon the often strained relation during school years between the invisible acorn and the life of the person with whom it lives. The theological debates can teach us a major psychological lesson. 
what we learn is less about belief in the union of the two incommensurables or about explanations of their mysterious connection than about what happens when they part. Psychopathology prompts sharper psychological insight than do spiritual ideals and formulae. A negative approach sheds the harshest light. The most pathologized moment in the entire incarnational story is the cry on the cross, which tells of the agony when one is encompassed only by the visible world. Enemies surround Jesus all through his 33 years, and though he was opposed and pursued, he was never so besieged as at that moment. The world of humans, of nature, and of things had become savage and hostile. Hitherto, the world had been permeated with invisibilities, a condition that Christianity called paganism. When the invisible forsakes the actual world, as it deserts Job, leaving him plagued with every sort of physical disaster, then the visible world no longer sustains life, because life is no longer invisibly backed. Then the world tears you apart. Isn't that the simple lesson taught by the withering and collapse of tribal cultures once they are robbed of their spirits in exchange for goods? The co-presence of visible and invisible sustains life. We come to recognize the overriding importance of the invisible only when it deserts, when it turns its back and disappears like Holder in the forest, like YHWH at Golgotha. The great task of a life-sustaining culture, then, is to keep the invisibles attached, the gods smiling and pleased, to invite them to remain by propitiations and rituals, by singing and dancing, smudging and chanting, by anniversaries and remembrances, by great doctrines such as the Incarnation, and by little intuitive gestures, such as touching wood or by fingering beads, a rabbit's foot, a shark's tooth, or by putting a mezuzah on the doorpost, dice on the dashboard, or by quietly laying a flower on polished stone. All this has nothing to do with belief, and so it has nothing to do with superstition. It's merely a matter of not forgetting that the invisibles can go away, leaving you with nothing but human relationships to cover your back. As the old Greeks said of their gods, they ask for little, just that they can they not be forgotten. Myths keep their demonic realm invisibly present. So do folk tales, like that of the woodsman who dropped his axe and its cutting edge, going deeper and deeper to keep close to that smiling. Esse is percipi, to be is to be perceived. Menelet was called to bullfighting, but this calling needed to be seen so that it could grow down into life. The perception was provided by a mentor, Jose Flores Camara, who saw beyond 
and who became Manalat's guide and manager, staying with him to the end. The decisive thing in Manalat's career took place. Jose Flores Camara happened to see him perform. When he saw Manalat in the ring, he somehow saw beyond what the boy was to what he could someday become. He saw instantly that the boy was doing the wrong kind of passes for his build and personality. He saw that it was ignorance of terrains that was causing the boy to be tossed all the time. But he also saw that Menelet had tremendous courage. He saw that he killed better than anyone he had ever seen. Killed in the old-fashioned, dangerous, stylish, straight over the right horn, up to the hilt school of killing that had all but disappeared from the arenas. Kamara signed up Menelet and as his manager, he began to remake him. He took him out on the ranches with the calves and started learning about bullfighting from scratch. Franklin Roosevelt also had this kind of vision, at least in regard to Lyndon Johnson. In attempting to explain to me the basis for the president's rapport with a young congressman, a rapport almost unique in Roosevelt's life, One of Roosevelt's advisors, James H. Rowe, told me, you have to understand that these were two great political geniuses. They could talk on the same level. Roosevelt had very few people he could talk to who could understand all the implications of what he was saying. But Lyndon, at the age of 28, could understand it all. Roosevelt, speaking of Johnson, once said to Harold Ix, You know, Harold, that's the kind of uninhibited young pro I might have been as a young man if I hadn't gone to Harvard. Roosevelt also made a prediction. He said, Harold, in the next couple of generations, the balance of power in this country is going to shift from the South and the West. And that kid, Lyndon Johnson, could well be the first Southern president. George Washington also selected a young man, Alexander Hamilton, to be his aide-de-camp. This happened in 1777, during a dark winter of the Revolution, and when Hamilton was 22 years old. Their relation has caused, still causes, endless biographical and psychoanalytical speculation. What matters to us here is Washington's genial eye, which could see and feel for the young, cocky, but frail artillery officer. Within a few months, Hamilton became, according to Washington's own words, the principal and most confidential aide of the commander-in-chief. Battlefield appointments call for sharp eyes. Subalterns fall. The second-in-command is shot through the head, and instantly the one in charge must move someone up to fill the slot. On what basis does he make the decision? No personality inventory, no IQ test, no interview going into case history and childhood. Instead, a rapid assessment of character, sometimes under fire, a perception of potential. Does crisis offer insight into the acorn? How does the baseball scout perceive the uniqueness in a 19-year-old rookie infielder in the bush leagues, not only size him up in terms of skills, 
but also see a nature that will fit him into a team, maybe please the crowds and be worth a large investment of money and time. What is this gift of perception? I'm going to put in here three of my own favorite tales of perceptive genius, which today would likely be attributed to favoritism on the part of a professor or homosexual attraction between two men, or given some other explanation that reduces the gift of perception to petty self-interest. How little charity is left in our current accounts of what happens between two people, especially when one is younger, the other older, one with influence, one without. Having perhaps lost the power of perception, we can only perceive power as the selective affinity between two persons. But to the tales. At Harvard in the 1890s, Professor William James had in his classes a rather wonky, stubby, talkative Jewish girl from California. She was late for classes, didn't know, didn't seem to understand what was going on, misspelled, knew no Latin. That sort of typical mess, the girl who couldn't get it together, a typical neurotic, as we might say today. But William James let her turn in a blank exam paper and gave her a high mark for the course, helped her through to medical studies at Johns Hopkins. He saw something unique in this pupil. She was Gertrude Stein, who found herself as the Gertrude Stein we know only 10 years later, far from Harvard, in Paris. In a southern small town, a man named Phil Stone, who had some literary education at Yale, took under his wing as coach and mentor a short, wiry, heavily drinking, highly pretentious lad of the town. This young fellow wrote poems, pretended to be British, carried a walking stick and wore special clothes all in small-town Mississippi during the First World War. Phil Stone listened to the boy, whom Jungian psychology might call today a typical poor, and perceived his uniqueness. The man went on to become the William Faulkner who was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1949. And then this third tale of the perception that saw beyond what the boy was to what he could someday become. In the year 1831, one of those marvelous old-fashioned scientific expeditions was to set forth. A schoolmaster named John Henslow suggested that one of his former pupils be appointed naturalist. The lad was then 22. He had been rather dull at school, hopeless in maths, although a keen collector of beetles from the countryside. He was hardly different from the others of his type and class. Hunting and shooting, popular member of the Glutton Club, aimed for the clergy. He had a typical family complex, as we might say today, soft in the mother and dominated by a 300-pound father. But Henslow saw something and persuaded the parties involved, including the pupil named Charles Darwin, that he make this journey. For Charles Darwin, it was his schoolmaster's eye that made the pivotal difference, as it was also for Elia Kazan and Truman Capote. The parents of these boys hardly knew what to do with them. Again, the acorn requires a mentor. Kazan writes, When I was 12 and we'd moved to New Rochelle, 
I had a stroke of luck. The accident of my eighth grade teacher. Her name was Miss Anna B. Shank, and as much as anyone, she influenced the course of my life. She was in her late forties, which I considered very old indeed, and she took to me a deep-dyed romantic. She was the one who told me that I had beautiful brown eyes. Twenty-five years later, having seen my name in a newspaper, she wrote me a letter. When you were only twelve, she wrote, you stood near my desk one morning, and the light from the window fell across your head and features and illuminated the expression on your face. Thought came to me of the great possibilities there were in your development, and... Miss Shank set out zealously to turn me away from the eldest son tradition of our people and the expectations of my father to steer me off a commercial course that would feature bookkeeping and accounting toward an education in what they now call the humanities. Truen Capote's mother did not find her little boy an easy charge. She said he lied. He parroted her second husband's Cuban accent. He was effeminate, with sissyish traits, and his voice never deepened, remaining as high as it was when he was in fourth grade. As late as 14, he was still throwing temper tantrums, lying on the floor and kicking his legs in the air when he did not get his way. He walked in his sleep, boycotted gym, and combed his hair all the time while sitting in biology class. He flunked algebra, French, and Spanish. While only five or six, he had a pencil and paper and scribbled notes to himself and carried a tiny dictionary with him wherever he went. He also accompanied a teacher to the movies and masturbated him in the dark. Mother sent him off to military school in Osigning, Sing Sing, New York. Enter Catherine Wood, English teacher, who not only shared his faith in himself, but believed that it was her duty, her mission, and sacred obligation to help bring his talents to blossom. He came to her attention as aggressively as he could manage. He was taking, she was taking her students on a tour of the school library and had just picked out a book by Sigrid Unset to give to one of the girls. Suddenly, she said, this little fellow who was not in my group turned around from where he was sitting and interrupted me. Must be wonderful to read her in the original, he said. Oh, I wouldn't think of anything else, I replied although of course I didn't know a word of Norwegian. From that time on, I saw Truman, and when he came into my class the next year in the 11th grade, I saw him all the time. A tall, gray-haired spinster, Miss Wood invited him often to dinner, read his stories, catered to him in class, and encouraged her colleagues to do the same. His mother couldn't understand this boy who liked such different things, she said. I remember sitting in my little dining room and saying to her that it was hard for me to tell his own mother this, but that in years to come, the other regular boys who do the usual things in the usual way would still be doing these things while Truman would be famous. The I may also belong to a member of the family, for instance, a sister. Golda Meir, a founding figure in the history of Israel and its prime minister during the 1973 war, 
had a sister, Shayna, nine years older. Golda finished elementary school at 14 as class valedictorian. Obviously, I would go on to high school and then perhaps even become a teacher, which is what I most wanted to be. Her mother had other ideas. She wanted a Dervaxin Shine Middle, a fine, upstanding girl. I could work in a shop and start thinking about getting married, which, she reminded me, was forbidden to women teachers by state Wisconsin law. In secret letters to her sister, who was dirt poor and tubercular, and had moved out some years before after battling their mother, Goldemeyer confessed her miserable dilemma. Shana wrote back, No, you shouldn't stop school. You have good chances to become something. Should get ready and come to us, and we will do all we can for you. Come to us immediately. Goldemeyer stole away from home at 16 because Shana offered a home to what she perceived in her sister. Equally important in the Goldemeyer story is the mother's intransigence, the parental fantasy of what the daughter should become. This helped unleash Golda's native daemon and its stubborn, rebellious idealism, helping her on the road to what she essentially was. The composer Albin Berg poured out his teenage heart to Hermann Watznauer, a member of the Berg family circle, who became the boy's friend, mentor, and catalyst. When the relationship began, Watznauer was 24, only 10 years older than Berg, and he sympathetically accompanied the boy's confessions of soul and gushings from the heart in letters sometimes running on for 30 pages. The mentor sees something essential. The poet Vladimir Mayakovsky's tutor, barely 10 years older than his charge, said, he liked working with adults and was annoyed if treated like a child. I observed that trait of his as soon as I met him. As a teenager, Arthur Rimbaud, a boy who lived most of his life in the imagination, when he walked sedately from school to home, he walked not the familiar streets, but the deck of a ship, the cobbles of Rome, the pavements of the Acropolis, found his soulmate in his teacher, Isambard, aged 21, to whom Rimbaud could at last speak of poets and poetry. This child, said Isambard, treated from the first as a young comrade, little by little became a dear friend. As Darwin's schoolmaster saw him, as Miss Wood saw Capote, so Isambard saw Rimbaud. Bainville, however, the most celebrated living poet of the day, to whom Rimbaud wrote an effusive appeal for approval, saying, We are in the month of love. I am nearly 17. I've got something in me, I don't know what, that wants to soar. Saw nothing. Bainville filed away the poems and the letter. Matter closed. No catalyst, no mentor, no I. In these various perceptual relationships, age and gender do not seem to matter. 
1777, Washington was 45, Hamilton 20, whereas Isambard and Rimbaud were scarcely six years apart. Today, to say age and gender seem irrelevant goes counter to the culture. A suspicion of homoerotic attraction between the elder Washington and the brilliant, slim Hamilton gives away a secret. Not the secret of a supposed clandestine affair, but the secret of the source of the perceptive eye. It is the eye of the heart. Something moves in the heart, opening it to perceiving the image in the heart of the other. Roosevelt had affection for Lyndon Johnson. The light from the window fell across your head, wrote Miss Shank. She saw. Menelet was doing the wrong kind of passes for his build and personality, Kamara saw. That kid Lyndon Johnson could well be the first Southern president, Roosevelt saw. In a dreadful ancient schoolhouse, dark, dreary, and scary at times, among a class of 50 children, mostly boys and mostly black, Orilla Miller, a young white school teacher, a beautiful woman, whom I loved, absolutely, with a child's love, saw James Baldwin, 10 years old. They discovered a common interest in Dickens. Both were reading him and anxious to exchange views. The young woman from the Midwest was amazed at the brilliance of the boy from the slums. They entered a friendship that allowed his daemon to come forth. Baldwin also saw Miller. Years and years later, after he had become an important and famous writer, they connected again. He wrote her and asked his old friend for a photograph. I've held your face in my mind for many years. Forty years after their first meetings in the Harlem schoolhouse and through the fiction of Dickens, Orilla Miller and James Baldwin went together to the movies to see, again, A Tale of Two Cities. We can no longer quite believe in these relations of the heart's affections. We have learned to see with the eye of the genitals. We can't imagine attractions that are based in imagination. For our culture today, desires must really be unconsciously sexual. Liaisons must really be copulations, open confessions, really seductive manipulations. But what drew these pairs together was common vision. They fell in love with a fantasy. For Baldwin and Miller, Dickens. For Capote and Wood, Sigurd Unset in Norwegian. Roosevelt and Johnson's was a correspondence of geniuses. As Rowe said, they could talk on the same level. Age, history, fact, play no significant roles. Theirs was a conversation between two presidents, heart to heart, acorn to acorn. When John Cates writes, I know nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections, and the truth of the imagination. He opens our own eye to see the workings of creative perception in human affairs. His phrase provides the transhuman ground for the art of mentoring. 
Mentoring begins when your imagination can fall in love with the fantasy of another. An erotic component is necessary, as it has been essential to education since Socrates, as it still is, though today either eliminated by computer learning or seen only with a genital eye as abuse, seduction, harassment, or impersonal hormonal need. The genital eye does not reveal what the acorn seeks. Study, for instance, ads for partners in the personals column. Once we pass through the sociological descriptions of body build, skin color, and sexual habits, a profession, age, and marital status, the truth of the imagination begins to emerge. Long walks, cooking, humor, movies, dancing, cuddling, and conversation. The ad states musical preferences, vacation dreams, tastes, and especially longings. We are asking for someone to accompany the acorn, not only for a companion in bed. A personal reveals the holiness of the heart's affections. The personal ad is a romantic dream. A deep-eyed romantic, she was the one who told me that I had beautiful brown eyes, wrote Elia Kazan of Miss Shank, who saw the great possibilities. Seeing is believing, believing in what you see, and this instantly confers belief to whoever, whatever receives your sight. The gift of sight surpasses the gifts of insight, for such sight blesses, it does transformative work. Therapy promotes the great delusion of insight. It preaches and practices the blindness of Oedipus. He asked questions about who he really was, as if you could find the true acorn of your being by self-questioning reflection. This therapeutic fallacy builds upon another, that the acorn is out of sight, hidden, squirreled away in childhood, repressed, forgotten, and therefore can be redeemed only by active introspection in the mirror of the mind. Mirrors, however, tell only a half-truth. The face in the looking glass is only half of the size of your actual face, merely half of what you, in fact, present and others see. The therapeutic search for true being might do better to follow carefully this chapter's maxim, stated in the passive voice, to be perceived. You are a displayed phenomenon. To be is, first of all, to be visible. Passively allowing yourself to be seen opens the possibility of blessing. So we seek lovers and mentors and friends that we may be seen and blessed. Miss Shank saw Kazan in the light that illuminated the expression on his face. Kamara saw how Menelet moved, how he killed, how his motions were out of tune with the terrain. Watsnaur walked with Berg, listened and looked. At the front, the commander picking his replacements observes in broad daylight. The inner man stands in the outer display. How they come on, how they behave, how they are. And what is the first question we ask about the inward state of being 
of any person we meet. How are you? You are how you are, just as you are in the saddleback of the present moment on parade. Your being, maybe all being, is precisely how it appears to be. The how of just so, sane, declaring who and what and where each event is. How it is says what it is. This is how it is. Its gestures, style, colorings, motions, speech, expression. In short, the actual complications of the image tell exactly how it is. For all this insistence on the phenomenal, I do not mean that there are no reserves, no shadows. I do not mean that an event is but a persona, the front it puts up, mere showcasing. Reserves and shadows are not invisible. They show in reticence, in circumlocution, circumlocutions and euphemisms, in shaded, averted eyes, in slips, in hesitancies of gestures, second thoughts, avoidances. There is nothing plain about a face or simple about a surface. The supposedly concealed is also on view and subject to keen sight, making up part of what any event affords to a good looker. The image that a mentor spots in a pupil or apprentice is neither all front nor what's hidden behind, neither a false self nor a true one. There is no real you other than the reality of you in your image. The mentor perceives the folds of a complexity whose convex concave, topsy-turvy curves of implication that are all the truth of imagination, allowing us to define an image as the complete how of a presentation. Here I am, right before your eyes. Do you read me? So let's think again about the acorn as a concealed, invisible potential. Instead, let's consider it to be thoroughly visible in the how of action. Not that he fights bulls, but how he fights bulls is mental let. Not that Gertrude Stein writes, but how she writes is the uniqueness of her realized image. This invisibility of the acorn occurs in the how of a visible performance, in its traces, if you will. The invisible is thoroughly visible all through the oak, and not elsewhere or prior to the oak, but acts like an implicate order folded all through the visible, like the butter in a French croissant or the fragrant air in risen bread. Invisible, not literally as such, but the invisible visible. Sometimes this invisible visible is referred to as the spirit of a place, the quality of a thing, the soul of a person, the mood of a scene, the style of an art. We like to take hold of it by accounting for it as context, as formal structure, or as an unclosed gestalt that draws us into it. Neither our concepts nor the eye that looks by means of them has been trained enough in imagination. In the perceptive art of reading images, we are not able to see how any one is when we try to see by means of types, categories, classes, 
diagnostics. Types of any sort obscure uniqueness. To see a particular person in terms of Irish or German, Jewish or Catholic, black or white, alcoholic or suicidal, victim or borderline, sees class concepts, not people. We are then talking sociology more than soul. We need an incredible number of words to read expressions. Most people cannot say what the person before them is like, but being unable to say does not imply that one is unable to see, writes the philosopher Jose Ortega y Gasset. Failures in our loves, friendships, and families often come down to failures of imaginative perception. When we are not looking with the eye of the heart, love is indeed blind, for then we are failing to see the other person as bearer of an acorn of imaginative truth. A feeling may be there, but not the sight, and as the vision clouds, so do sympathy and interest. We feel only annoyed, and we resort to diagnostic and typological concepts. But your husband is not mother-bound. He whines and expects, and is often paralyzed. Your wife is not animus-ridden. She is peremptory, argues logically, and can't let go. How they are is who they are, and not what they said. By some types and classes. Love. We seem not as unique in our loving as we might like to believe. People seem to have similar styles of loving. Adult identical twins show this similarity most clearly, for they tend to conceive of love in the same way. By styles of loving, I'm referring to the models used in love research. The broad concept of love is sorted into a variety of baskets, such as responsible altruistic caretaking, agape, practical partnership, pragma, erotic intimacy, eros, and so on. Identical twins converge in these categories, yet the reason for the similarity is not genetic. The findings from this first behavior genetic analysis of adult love styles are remarkable for two reasons. First, we know of no personality domain, stress tolerance, aggression, control, etc., in which genetic factors play such a small role. Second, we are aware of no attitude, religious beliefs, race biases, etc., in which genetic factors play such a small role. Now here is a happy curiosity. These twins are in accord in all love styles except for one. Mania, the obsessive, tormented feeling usually characteristic of romantic love. So we have to inquire into why the exception of mania romantic, manic romantic love. In this specific regard, there seems to be an independence of the heart. Manic love is something else. Since the explanation for the similarity of styles is not genetic, 
the research model allows only one alternative environment. Lookalike twins who love alike have picked up identical love maps. Love maps are one of the ways psychology tries to account for the mysteries of being seized by love. You grow up in a parental environment where certain features bring pleasure, meet needs, enhance vitality. These characteristics form a schema that you fall for when a person crosses your path, who seems to have the attributes of the love map. As you grow up, this unconscious map takes shape and a composite proto-image of the ideal sweetheart gradually emerges. So, long before your true love walks past you in a classroom, at a shopping mall, or in the office, you have already constructed some basic elements of your ideal sweetheart. The love map consists of layers. Cross-cultural research claims that there is a collective level for love maps in general, such as a good complexion. In women, bodies that are plump and wide-hipped are universally attractive. In men, worldly goods, such as cars or camels. Then there are layers reflecting traditions, fashions, and local community norms. The theory of love maps suggests that environmental conditioning determines the object of your desire. Other psychologists call this object choice a projection. According to Jungian psychology, the projection springs from an archetypal source as part of each soul's intimate essence. For Jungians, the love map has highly individualized features because it is a complex image in the heart that brings about the fall and the feeling that this is a call of fate. The more obsessive and compelling the image, the more madly in love you become which intensifies the conviction that indeed fate is calling. Jungians name this archetypal factor that skews the love map toward a particular person, the anima and animus. These figures may bear surface traits of the love map, but can't be reduced to it. Anima and animus originate in the Latin words for soul and spirit, so your heart may fall for a composite childhood image, but always an unknown configuration is structuring your map and permeating it with experiences of miracle and mystery. That's why, Jungians would say, love is so overwhelming. It knocks your socks off as it lifts you right out of your shoes and out of this world. The experience of romantic love is beyond all conditions, claiming devotion beyond all bounds. For Plato, mania was an intervention of the gods, specifically Aphrodite and Eros. Little else in life feels more exclusively meant for me, more personally directed at you, than the manic moment of romance. Romance feels fateful, feels like kismet, karma, destiny. It had to be you. Nobody else would do. Only you. I wandered around, finally found. You are my lucky star.
whose fatal attraction, impersonally called chemistry, and attached to subliminal pheromones, has its autonomy of force apart from both genetics and environment. Whether this feeling be delusional or not, it provides convincing witness to what the unions are claiming with their interpretation of romantic love. Something meant, something else that is particularly romantic, accompanies the phenomenon. Of course, identical twins lose some of their sameness by falling differently. So we have seen two ways of imagining the love map the union anima animus and the nature or nurture model. According to the latter, romantic love styles are not strongly influenced by heritable factors. The only possible alternative is the environment. You learned your style of love during early years. How? Unique experiences, on the one hand, and on the other, perhaps sharing parents and making similar observations of parents' relational styles. Perhaps. The thesis assumes that you fall in love, if not directly with your parents, as Freudianism implies, then with surrogates for them, or at least following their patterns. Again, the parental fallacy is brought in to account for what is not understood. Whether I want a girl just like the girl who married dear old dad, or a girl as different from her as possible, it is a great leap of faith and an insult to the person for whom my heart has fallen to believe that my fantasies and styles of love replicate mom and dad, except on the collective socialized level of the map. For unions, mom and dad are preview images of the anima and animus. Even if we do imitate mom and dad and their style of loving, we're not photocopies. Fantasy embellishes the map, or more likely designs it. Empirical studies of romantic love declare that romantic love is inexorably tied up with fantasy. Idealization is essential to it, not imitation, not replication of the known, expectation of the unknown. Some details of parental manners of relating suit, others are never reproduced, and the factors that spin the fantasy and select the details are anima and animus. The archetypal fantasies integrate whatever maps we pick up from mom and dad, and not the other way around. There can be other causes than family styles for similarities between twins. Twins may seek to replicate the relationship they have with each other, that stability, that friendship, that practicality and caring, and unconscious egg-given physical closeness. Transferring to a mate what has been their lifestyle so far. Kissing and fighting go on in the womb. Replication alone might give them similar love maps, but the object of our search is less the reason for their similarity than their difference regarding manic romantic love, that condition of torment and desperate need
of highs and lows, of obsessive dependency, a condition you never seem to be able to get over. Another reason for dissimilarity in romantic styles of twins is the need for a psychological mirror, which romantic love provides. In the mirror of similarity, we see only our twin face. In the mirror of mania, we see something altogether other, the face that we cannot find, do not know, and that seems to require a romantic agony. If monozygotic identity has laid in your DNA and reinforced with every shared environmental breath, it takes wrenching distortion to bring about difference. The love map may account for visibilities like those fluid hips, those cars or camels, but love falls also for something else, invisible. We say there's something about her. The whole world changes in his presence. As Flaubert supposedly said, she was the focal point of light at which the totality of things converged. This is off the map altogether. We're in the terrain of transcendence, where usual realities hold less conviction than invisibilities. If ever we wanted obvious proof of the daemon and its calling, we need but fall once in love. The rational sources of heredity and environment are not enough to give rise to the torrents of romantic agony. It's all you, and never do you feel more flooded with importance and more determined, more destined, nor can what you do turn out to be more demonic. This intoxication with self-importance suggests that romantic love has, in fact, promoted the growth of individuality. According to Susan and Clyde Hendrick, it can well be well argued that the Western sense of person parallels the place given to romantic love in the culture, as shown first by courtly romance and the troubadours, and then in the Renaissance. Ideals of individualism and individual destiny reached an apogee in the 19th century, as did the delirious exaggerations of romantic love, so that, as the Hendricks say, romantic love may be construed as a force or device to help create or enhance self and individuality. These psychodynamics must locate the call of love within the personal self. My psychodynamics imagines this call more phenomenal, phenomenologically using the language that love itself uses. Myth, poetry, story, and song. And that places the call beyond the self, as if it comes from a divine or demonic being. That's why the manic style of romantic love doesn't converge with the other maps of loving. Calling crystallizes in that person whose face calls you to what feels like your fate. That person becomes a divinity exteriorized, 
Master of my fate, mistress of my soul, as the romantics say, both demonic and angelic, the one I must cling to and cannot part from. Not because I am so weak, but because it, the call, the destiny, is so strong. Of course I am tormented, possessive, dependent, in pain. The diamond is shredding my love map. Identical twins may choose the same aftershave and toothpaste, but the most important choice of all, that of a mate, seems to be an exception. Romantic infatuation forms almost adventitiously. Behavioral science concludes that human pairing is inherently random. It retreats to the statistical luck of the draw to account for the most important choice of all, because psychology as a science dares not imagine what it cannot measure. We can, however, read the recent research as support for the autonomy of the genius. Its fire lights up precisely the companion required, for better or worse, for long-term or short, convincing me that this other is a one and only, and this event is unique. The other styles of loving charted in the research, sharing, caring, practical commitments, and libidinal intimacy are less selective, less personal. They do not insist upon this particular partner who embodies the image I carry in my heart. Romantic mania sees what is already there in the acorn before you even came along. The Spanish philosopher Ortega y Cassette says we fall in love on few occasions in a long life. It is a rare and fortuitous event, and it strikes incredibly deeply. When such love happens, it is for no other reason than the singularity of the object, only this person, not attributes and virtues, not voice or hips or bank account, not projections left over from earlier flames or hand-me-down family patterns, simply the uniqueness of this person whom the heart's eye selected. Without that sense of fate in the choice, the romance of the love doesn't work. For this sort of love is not a personal relationship or a genetic epistasis, but more likely a demonic inheritance, a gift and curse from the invisible ancestors. A similar sense of destiny, if less sudden and less heated, and a similar devotion can mark falling for a place and even for work as well as for a person. You can't leave it. You must stay with it until it's over. You perform ritual magic devotions to keep it going. The same enchantments occur, the same sense arises, that I could live the rest of my life with you, whether you as a person, a place, a work. And the similar feeling exists, that not only is my life called here, but my death.
Death is a ponderous and repugnant term to connect with the intense vibrations of romantic love. But romantic love especially reverberates with feelings of both the eternal and the shortness and fragility of life, as if death's call to a limitless beyond elsewhere were always shadowing and inspiring romantic passion. One takes the most extraordinary risks, and when literature joins romantic lovers, it also joins their love with death. The eye of the heart that sees is also the eye of death that sees through a visible presentation to an invisible core. When Michelangelo sculpted portraits of his contemporaries or of the figures of religion and myth, he attempted to see what he called the imagine del cor, the heart's image, a prefiguration of what he was sculpting as if the chisel that cut the rock followed the eye that penetrated his subject into its heart. The portrait aimed to reveal the inner soul of what he was carving. A heart's image lies within each person. It is what we truly reveal when we fall helplessly in love, for then we are open to display who we most truly are giving a glimpse of our soul's genius. People say, he looks so different, he must be in love. She's fallen in love, she's utterly changed. When love moves the heart, something else is perceived in the idolized object, which poetic language tries to capture. Michelangelo tried to express this image in the sculpted form The categories of nature and nurture do not reach into the heart or see through its eye. That is why we have had to add to our examination of genetics and environment this coda on love. The meeting between lover and beloved is heart to heart, like that between sculptor and model, between hand and stone. It is a meeting of images, an exchange of imaginations. When we fall in love, we begin to imagine romantically, fiercely, wildly, madly, jealously, with possessive, paranoid intensity. And when we imagine strongly, we begin to fall in love with the images conjured before the heart's eye, as when starting a project preparing a vacation trip, planning a new house in a different city, swelling with pregnancy. Our imaginations draw us ever more fully into the venture. You can't leave the lab, can't stop buying equipment, reading brochures, imagining names. You're in love because of imagination. By freeing imagination, Even identical twins are freed of their sameness. Fate. Fate and fatalism. But if the soul chooses its daemon and chooses its life, how have we still any power of decision? Asks Plotinus. 
whereas our freedom, all that we live and believe to be ours, all our arduously arrived at decisions must in truth be predetermined. We are snared in a delusional veil, believing that we are the agents of our own lives, while all along each life has been laid down in the acorn, and we are but fulfilling a secret plan in the heart. Our freedom, it seems, consists only in opting for what the acorn intends. To cast off this erroneous conclusion, let's make clearer what the genius does and does not do. Let's become more precise about the range of the acorn's powers. In what ways is it effective, and how is it limited? If it causes behaviors in childhood, what do we mean by cause? If it intends a specific way of life, such as theatrical performance, mathematical invention, or public politics, what do we mean by intention? Has it a final end in view, even an image of fulfillment and a date of death? If it is so powerful as to fatefully determine school expulsion and childhood illnesses, what do we mean by determinism? And finally, if it is the acorn that gives the feeling that things could not be otherwise, that even the wrongs have been necessary, what do we mean by necessity? Answers to these questions are at the heart of this book. For if these concerns are not laid out clearly and dealt with, we are likely either to abandon ourselves to fatalism or to abandon the book to fantasy. Fatalism is the seductive other side to the heroic ego, which shoulders so much in a do-it-yourself, winner-take-all civilization. The bigger the load, the more you want to put it down or pass it off to a larger, stronger carrier like fate. The hero is America personified. The heroic ego landed on Plymouth Rock, went with Daniel Boone into the wilds with a gun, Bible and dog, stands tall in tombstone with John Wayne, and stonewalls his corporation against the whole bloody planet. This ego cut its way through the forest and made its own path, despite competitors and predators. Even she, Little Red Riding Hood, has to cope with harassment by the predator wolf on her lonely path. This burden of being alone with your own self-made destiny in a world lurking with figures that want to do you in makes life a hell of a struggle. If I do not beat back the obstacles and push my way forward, I could be left back in school or become an underachiever and sent for counseling to get me through psychological blocks and fixations. I have to advance from preschool onward. I have to develop, climb, defend, secure simply to exist, for that is the heroic definition of existence. Not much fun here, and when Little Red Riding Hood does pause to pick flowers to put in her generous basket of goodies for grandmother, up pops the toothy wolf. In this paranoid definition of life, Life is struggle, competition for survival, the other as either ally or enemy. Fatalism offers 
surcease. It's all in the stars. There is a divine plan. Whatever happens, happens for the best, in the best of possible worlds. Voltaire's Candide. The world is off my shoulders, for it is really carried by fate, and I am really in the lap of the gods. Just as Plato's myth says, I am living the particular fate that has come straight from the lap of necessity. So it doesn't matter what I choose. I'm not really choosing anyway. Choice is a delusion. Life is all predetermined. This way of thinking is fatalism, and it is not what is meant by fate. This way of thinking reflects a belief system, a fatalistic ideology, not the goddesses Morai, whom we call in English the fates, and who appear in Plato's myth, arranging the lots and leading the daemon toward our birth. They do not predetermine each and every event as if life were set up by them. Rather, the Greek idea of fate would be more like this. Events happen to people. They cannot understand why it happened, and since it has happened, evidently it had to be. Post hoc ergo procter hoc. After the event post hoc, we give an account of what made it happen, ergo propter hoc. It is not written in the stars that the stock market must crash in October 1987. But after it has crashed, we find reasons that clearly made it necessary for it to have crashed right then. For the Greeks, the cause of these untoward events would be fate. But fate causes only events that are unusual, that oddly don't fit in. Not each and everything is laid out in a superior divine plan. That sort of comprehensive explanation is fatalism, which makes for paranoia, occultist, Ouija board prognostics, and passive-aggressive behavior, combining meek submission to fate with bitter anger against it. So it is better to imagine fate as a momentary intervening variable. The Germans used the term Augenblickskott for a minor divinity that passes in the blink of an eye and has a momentary effect. The religious might speak of an intercessionary angel. Rather than a constant companion who walks with you and talks with you and holds your hands through all the crises of the day, Fate intervenes at odd and unexpected junctions, gives a sly wink or big shove. You sell your shares after studying the market. The very next day, a corporate takeover is announced, and what you sold goes up 30%. Just, as the fi just at the finish line, the wind dies down, and the rival boat glides past to win by one second. But if you get out of the market altogether and stuff your gold in your mattress, because it is not your fate to invest, or if you decide you were not meant to win the sailing cup, perhaps not meant to win at all, or even to sail, and that the sudden dying wind is an omen indicating that you are out of touch with the elements, and so you sell your boat 
and shift your sport to rock climbing or lapse into melancholy. These are your choices, resulting from the meaning you find in the wind. To see the hand of fate in these untoward events raises their importance and gives pause for reflection. To believe, however, that your market timing and the one-second loss are deciding your life for you, this is fatalism. Fatalism would give all over to fate. No need to vote, no need to fight for gun control, or join mothers against drunk driving. No need even to have a fire department, since shit happens and it's all meant to fall just as it falls. Cast the I Ching. The little sticks will tell you what fate wants you to do. That's fatalism. Catching the sly winks of fate is a reflective act. It is an act of thought, while fatalism is a state of feeling, abandoning thoughtfulness, specific details, and carefully reasoning. Instead of thinking things through, you give up to the larger mood of fatality. Fatalism accounts for life as a whole. Whatever happens can be fit within the large generality of individuation, or my journey, or growth. Fatalism comforts, for it raises no questions. There's no need to examine just how events fit in. The Greek word for fate, mora, means a share, a portion. As fate has only a portion in what happens, so the daemon, the personal, inter internalized aspect of mora, has only a portion in our lives, calling them but not owning them. Mora derives from the root smer or mer, meaning to ponder, to think, meditate, consider, care. It is a deeply psychological term requiring us to scrutinize events with respect to the portion that comes from elsewhere and is unaccountable, and the portion that belongs to me, what I did, could have done, can do. Mora is not in my hands, but Mora is only a portion. I can't abandon my actions or my abilities and their realization and their frustrations and failures. To them, the gods and goddesses, or to the will of the demonic acorn. Fate does not relieve me of responsibility. In fact, it calls for more. Particularly, it calls for the responsibility of analysis. By analysis, I do not mean a reductive psychoanalysis. I do not mean pinning blame on a cause, saying, the daemon made it happen. It's my fate. I can't help making mistakes in the stock market. I was never taught by my father. My mother spent money like water. As a child, I never had an allowance and so never learned to manage money. I am self-destructive. And so on and so forth, pinning blame on a chain of causes leading back to the parental fallacy. When the Greeks analyzed an untoward and obscure event, they went to the oracle to ask to which god or goddess they should sacrifice 
regarding this trouble, this desire, this piece of business. First, to become more specific. Second, to propitiate more accurately. Analysis in this model tries to discover which fate, which archetypal hand, asks to be noticed and remembered. We remember fate's portion when adding Deo Concidente, or God willing, as the Irish put it, after any little plan, such as one to take the train tomorrow. I'll see you at the station then, God willing. I intend to go there. I will make arrangements. But the untoward can happen. So I remember the fate's portion with Dio Concidente. Or I touch wood. Pious old Jews hardly said a sentence without invoking the possibility that something untoward could intervene and counter their intentions. This recollection, by touching wood, of the unpredictable interventions of fate, brings us back to the daemon. For the daemon surprises. It crosses my intentions with its interventions. Sometimes with a little twinge of hesitation, sometimes with a quick crush on something or someone. These surprises feel small and irrational. You can't brush them aside, yet they also convey a sense of importance, which can make you say afterward, fate. Talos and teleology. Fatalism bestows a feeling that what happens in my life is intended toward a distant, misty goal. Something is meant for me. I am meant to be a singer or a bullfighter. I am meant to have success, or be cursed and wronged and luckless, or to die in a certain way on a certain day. The image I am born with not only pushes from the beginning, it also pulls toward an end. Teleology is the term for this belief, that events are pulled by a purpose toward a definite end. Talos means aim, end, or fulfillment. A talos is opposite to cause as we generally think of causes today. Causality asks, who started it? It imagines events pushed from behind by the past. Teleology asks, what's the point? What's the purpose? It conceives events aimed toward a goal. Finalism, another term for teleology, maintains that each of us, like the cosmos itself, is moving toward a final goal. The goal may be defined in a variety of ways, reunion with God and redemption of all sins, slow entropy running down to stasis, ever-evolving consciousness and the dissolution of matter into spirit, a better life or worse, apocalyptic catastrophe or divine salvation. Teleology gives a logic to life. It provides a rational account of life's long-range purpose, and teleology reads whatever happens in life as confirming this long-range vision. For instance, God's will his divine plan.
If we drop the ology and stick with telos, we can get back to its first and original meaning, formulated by Aristotle, that for the sake of which I go to the store to buy bread and milk, not because I was pulled by a vision of the betterment of mankind, not because of a defined philosophy that governs all actions, including why I married and had children, and lease a car so I can get to the store for their needs, all of which can answer any question, why, with one final teleological answer. Telos gives a limited, specific reason for the sake of which I perform the action. It imagines every action to be purposeful, but it does not state an overriding purpose to action in general. That would be teleology or finalism. For Talos, it's enough to say, I went to the store for the sake of the family breakfast. We are spared the philosophies of breakfast, the theology of caring, the symbolism of the morning meal, the morality of duty, the pseudo-politics of family values, the psychology of needs and wants, the economics of nutritional costs, the physiology of morning metabolism. There are many philosophies of breakfast that can satisfy your teleological vision of life. Many gods come to the breakfast table, but the telos, the purpose of the bread and milk and run to the store, is simply the breakfast itself. Eat first, talk later. The acorn seems to follow just this sort of limited pattern, and does not indulge in long-term philosophies. It disturbs the heart. It bursts out in a temper, as it did in Menuhin. It excites, calls, demands, but rarely does it offer a grand purpose. The pull of purpose comes with force. You may feel full of purpose, but just what it is and how to get there remains undetermined. The talos may even be double or triple and confused about whether to sing or dance, write or paint. Purpose does not usually appear as a clearly framed goal, but more likely as a troubling, unclear urge, coupled with a sense of indubitable importance. Two stories from the childhood of the Swedish filmmaker and theater director Ingmar Bergman will bring out the indeterminate determinism of the acorn. As a small boy, Bergman says, he was prone to lying and often unable to distinguish between fantasy and reality, or, as he put it, between magic and oatmeal porridge. At the age of seven, he was taken to the circus, an event that drove me into a state of feverish excitement. The crucial moment came when he saw a young woman dressed in white, riding around on a huge black stallion. I was overcome for love, with love for this young woman. She was included in my fantasy games, and I called her Esmeralda. Under an oath of secrecy, I confided in the boy called Nice, who sat next to me at school. I told him 
that my parents had sold me to Schumann's circus, and I was soon to be taken away from home and school to be trained as an acrobat, together with Esmeralda, who was considered the most beautiful woman in the world. The next day, my fantasy was revealed and desecrated. My class teacher considered the matter so serious that she wrote an agitated letter to my mother. There was a dreadful court scene. I was put up against the wall, humiliated and disgraced, at home as well as school. Fifty years later, I asked mother if she remembered my sale to the circus. Did no one question the deeper reasons why a seven-year-old wished to leave home and be sold to a circus? Mother replied that they had already been troubled on several occasions by my lies and fantasies. In her anguish, she had consulted the pediatrician. He had emphasized how important it was for a child to learn at an early stage to differentiate between fantasy and reality, as they were now faced with an insolent and flagrant lie it had to be pun punished accordingly. I had my revenge on my former friend by taking my brother's sheath knife and chasing him around the school playground. When a teacher threw herself between us, I tried to kill her. I was removed from school and severely beaten. Then my false friend caught polio and died, which pleased me. But I still fantasized about Esmeralda, our adventures becoming more and more dangerous, and our love more and more passionate. So much is packed into this one incident, the desperate importance of finding an actual place, the circus, where the two realms, magic and reality, combine. The first encounter with Anima, the white woman on the black horse, and the manic madness of falling in love. The romantic vision is outside of time, so Ingmar's age is irrelevant to the eternality of the archetypal emotion. The life and death risk, that one might kill or die for one's vision, the disciplinary countermeasures of the real world of teachers, doctors, parents, the value of the secret and the cosmic catastrophe of betrayal which splits apart fantasy and reality, heaven and earth, Esmeralda and Porridge. Although the entire event blazes with importance and bears traces of Bergman's character and calling, there is no glimpse of future career, no message. There is no teleology, no determinism, no finalism. The second tale, more evidently connected to Bergman's calling, is about moving pictures. More than anything else, I longed for a cinematograph. The year before, I had been to the cinema for the first time and seen a film about a horse. I think it was called Black Beauty. To me, it was the beginning. I was overcome with a fever that has never left me. The silent shadows turned their pale faces towards me and spoke 
and inaudible voices to my most secret feelings. Sixty years have gone by, and nothing has changed. The fever is the same. Come the following Christmas. All the food was laid out, and the distribution of Christmas gifts took place at the dining room table. The baskets were carried in. Father officiated with a cigar and glass of sweet liqueur. The presents were handed out. That was when the cinematograph affair occurred. My brother was the one who got it. At once I began to howl. I was ticked off and disappeared under the table, where I raged on and was told to be quiet immediately. I rushed off to the nursery, swearing and cursing, considered running away, and finally fell asleep, exhausted by grief. Later in the evening, I woke up. Among my brother's other Christmas presents, on the white, gate-legged table was the cinematograph, with its crooked chimney, its beautifully shaped brass lens, and its rack for the film loops. I made a swift decision. I woke my brother and proposed a deal. I offered him my hundred tin soldiers in exchange for the cinematograph. As Dag possessed a huge army and was always involved in war games with his friends, an agreement was made to the satisfaction of both parties. The cinematograph was mine. The apparatus also included a square purple box, which contained some glass slides and a sepia-colored film strip. Information on the lid stated that the film was called Mrs. Hall. Who this Mrs. Hall was, no one knew, but later it turned out that she was a popular equivalent of the goddess of love in Mediterranean countries. The next morning, I retreated into the spacious wardrobe in the nursery, placed the cinematograph on a sugar crate, lit the paraffin lamp, and directed the beam of light onto the whitewashed wall. A picture of a meadow appeared on the wall. Asleep in the meadow was a young woman, apparently wearing national costume. Then I turned the handle. It is impossible to describe this. I can't find words to express my excitement. But at any time, I can recall the smell of the hot metal, the scent of mothballs and dust in the wardrobe, the feel of the crank against my hand. I can see the trembling rectangle on the wall. I turned the handle and the girl woke up, sat up, slowly got up, stretched her arms out, swung around, and disappeared to the right. If I went on turning, she would again lie there and make exactly the same movements all over again. She was moving. Bregman's story of the movie machine makes clear the difference between causality, being pushed from behind by the past, and teleology, being pulled toward a goal. To the question of why that little boy so desperately wanted the cinematograph, why he was willing to yield a whole army for it, 
causality replies. He had seen one previously, and it piqued his curiosity. When his brother received it, sibling rivalry, going back to earlier years and birth order, provoked envy. Earlier still is the black horse of the circus incident, repeating his first remembered film, Black Beauty, which offers liberation, being sold as a passive form of running away to the circus. From the morally oppressive house of his father, the pastor. Or he may have desired power over his mother, over a woman, whom he could make move, merely by cranking the handle. Causality, or what classical philosophy Aristotle named efficient causality, tries to answer the question, what initiated emotion? By working back through a series of hypothetical connections, a chain of supposedly linked events, each presumed to have been initiated by the one preceding. Even if all these links were actually connected, one pushing the next, like a fantastical Rube Goldberg machine, the very first link is fastened to a bare surmise. Why that particular image of a black horse? Why ravishing Esmeralda? Why the circus? To what is that first spontaneous and long-remembered passion linked? Our answer, ask fate. Fate gives this reply. Ingmar Bergman, filmmaker in Acorn, at age seven, if not earlier, had his vision. He did not know it, could not foretell it, but something daemonic selected the events that made Esmeralda so compelling and the later cinematograph so necessary. Fate had no teleological plan, no final goal of Through a Glass Darkly or the Magic Flute in mind. Yet the daemon's fateful vision infuses particular events with emotional importance, thrill, feverish excitement, cursing. Bergman's fate was not sealed, but signified. Once more, let me try to distinguish the narrower idea of telos from the broad category of teleology, mainly because the first is the most useful, while the second is usually not. The idea of telos gives value to what happens by regarding each occurrence as having purpose. What happens is for the sake of something. It has intention. Little boy Ingmar did not just concoct lies. His story is intended toward a lifestyle and career in which the lying stories not only made sense, but were necessary to the illusions of his kind of work. He was already making theater of his life before he had a stage or script. To look at the events of his childhood through the lens of purpose changes them from mere lives and temper tantrums and obsessive desires to expressions of the necessities of his soul. Talos gives events value. But adding an ology to Talos declares what that value is. It says what is intended by the tantrum and the obsession. 
It dares to pronounce the purpose. Such predictions are presumptuous because Bergman's line could also belong to the pattern of a forger, of a huckster. The black horse could have carried him off in many directions. Esmeralda, Mrs. Hall, and the moving cinematograph image on the grass might have indicated painting or pimping, fashion design or cross-dressing. To state the purpose as if a definite teleological end was pulling him toward it, he really intended to be in the theater. Women will be crucial. Fantasy is your métier, and you must have control. This is presumptuous. It is also laming, for if you already know what the purpose of a symptom is, you've robbed the symptom of its own peculiar intentions. You have lost respect for its own purpose and thus lessened its value. Freud's theoretical system could state full well what was going on in a childhood obsession, but Freud said practice required withholding, abstention, reserve. He did not allow the practice of psychoanalysis to become teleological, even though he regarded all the phenomena going on in the analysis to have a telos. The acorn acts less as a personal guide with a sure long-term direction than as a moving style, an inner dynamic that gives the feeling of purpose to occasions. You get the feeling of importance. This supposedly trivial moment is significant, while this supposedly major event doesn't matter that much. Let's say the acorn is more concerned with the soul aspect of events, more alive to what's good for it than to what you believe is good for you. This helps explain why Socrates' daemon told him not to escape imprisonment and execution. His death belonged to the integrity of his image, to his innate form. A death, whether in the bullring, on the toilet, or in a car crash, may make more sense to the image and its trajectory than to you and your plan. Accidents. The easy part is following the trajectory with dedication. We often feel what we must do. The image in the heart can lay down strong demands and it asks us to keep faith. The hard job is making sense of accidents, those trivial gusts that take you off course and seem to be delaying your projected arrival in the teleological harbor. Are the hindering gusts distractions, or has each one its particular purpose? Do they together combine to advance the boat, maybe to a different port? You will not be able to find any port any point in an untoward incident, if your compass is pointed too fixedly on the far horizon and your teleological vision knows where you should be going, what you should be doing to get there, and where you are right now.
even more. What matters is not so much whether an interference has or does not have purpose. Rather, it is important to look with a purposive eye, seeking value in the unexpected. The purposive eye starts from the assumption that events can indeed be accidents. The world is run as much by folly as by wisdom, as much by order as by chaos, but, and thus but, is huge. These accidents may still intend something interesting. It is as fatalistic and teleological to claim cosmic design as to claim cosmic randomness. The eye of purpose merely looks into each accident, as these events are called, for what it says about itself. The soul seeks to fit it into its form. Betty Davis, seven or eight years old and away at school, was playing Santa Claus. Real candles lit the tree, and under the tree were all the presents. As little Betty tried to get close to the presents, she touched a candle with her sleeve. It spread through her costume to her cotton beard. Suddenly I was on fire. I started screaming in terror. I heard voices felt myself being wrapped in a rug. When the rug was taken off, I decided to keep my eyes closed. Ever the actress. I would make believe I was blind. Her eyes. A shudder of delight went through me. I was in complete command of the moment. The acorn had not staged the fire, but Betty Davis could indeed turn it into theater. A person's innate form incorporates the accidents. Character is fate. Consider the early years of two great connoisseurs of food. Pierre Franey in a Burgundy village caught fish by slipping a hand over a resting trout and plucking it straight from the stream and then ate the fish poached, lukewarm, with herb mayonnaise. He raised rabbits and killed chickens. He searched the early morning fields for little molehills, which covered and whitened dandelion stems, improving their sweetness. In short, he grew up on intimate terms with the food we ate. Such raw incidents happen to any boy in that village, but Franey's image turns them into the cooked sophistication of the professional chef. James Beard, cook, advisor to cooks, writer on cooking, gourmet extraordinaire, weighed 14 pounds at birth. He was an oversized accident for a mother in her 40s. Beard's natal body seems to have been chosen by his soul to incorporate fully the tastes and smells that were to be his kind of life. His first accidents was also the scene of my first gastronomical adventure. I was on all fours. I crawled into the vegetable bin, 
settled on a giant onion and ate it, skin and all. It must have marked me for life. Franey and Beard Instances of the daemon making use of haphazard occasions. At 18, Churchill cracked his skull and ruptured a kidney in an accident while playing heroic battle games. During his convalescence, he found himself intellectually. The forum not only integrates the fall, but is fed by it. While at way of sc- at school, the elder brother of James Barry cracked his skull in the skating pond and died. Barry's mother went into years of seclusion and invalidism, mourning the loss of her favorite boy. Jamie, then only six or seven, kept his mother company in the sick room, trying to make her laugh. They told each other stories, hers biographical, his more invented. The acorn shaped the accident, the sorrow, and the confinement, according to the image of J.M. Barry, writer of fantasy. The accident that blinded James Thurber in one eye and eventually the other, his brother shot him with an arrow. While he was still a small boy, neither set his life course nor blew him off it. The form bends to accommodate and finds purpose, like his early writing skills, like the amateurish quality of Thurber's outsized cartoons, drawn with odd scale and perspective. President Richard M. Nixon was especially fond of Tom Sawyer. It is hardly unusual to come upon that book in accounts of American boyhood reading, and Nixon was an avid reader and writer very early. Nixon liked the episode where Tom tricks Ben Rogers into whitewashing his fence, so much so that he learned it all by heart. Nearly 50 years later in the White House, Nixon recited the episode without a mistake. Incidental trivia from childhood given significance by the soul. The great fashion designer Coco Chanel, who in 1924 invented the basic little black dress, passed all of her teen years in a rigid monastic orphanage. It was an imprisonment, and every trace of it, and her time there, has been erased from the records, as well as from her memoirs. Don't tell me what I'm feeling. You can die more than once in your life, you know, she once said. But the classic austerity of her suits, their symmetrical perfection, her constant use of black and white and gray, replicate the accidents of her suppression despite her effacement of the memories. What the soul needs, it uses. It is amazing how practically wise it can be about misfortune and accidents.